Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. If you are over 60 years old, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because that would be rude. Um, But if you are over 60 years old, then you were born in a time before any human being had ever left the Earth's atmosphere voluntarily and traveled into space. I said voluntarily because I can't verify that no one was just shot up there for no reason. But uh, that we know of, you were born prior to a time when anybody would have left Earth's gravity and traveled into outer space. In the last 60 years, you've been witness to some of some just phenomenal technological marvels that have come from those early days of Project Mercury when John Glenn was the first astronaut to orbit the Earth. As we gather here this morning, just to, just to kind of think of, of where, we've, where we've come, we have two space probes named Voyager that have traveled far beyond the planets of our solar system. They're so far out there now that it actually takes their radio transmissions, they send a daily radio transmission, it takes them 19 hours to reach Earth. You just think about how long a radio, I mean, you get on the radio, you can talk back and forth real time. It takes 19 hours for those Voyager transmissions to reach Earth. The latest generation of NASA scientists have now perfected the art of driving remote-controlled cars on the surface of neighboring planets. You can go online and see pictures that the Mars Curiosity rover has taken of the red planet and has sent back. And this thing's the size of a large SUV, and they're driving it remote control from, I guess, out in Pasadena, California. They're driving this thing uh, via remote. Uh, That's the, the, the remarkable things that have happened in the last 60 years. We've seen the space shuttle come and go. Children born, uh, small children today, if you say, say, you know, I remember the space shuttle, they'll look at you and say, well, what's a space shuttle? They don't know anything about it. Since 1959, a very elite club has formed that is made up of 586 individuals from more than 25 nations. That club is a dangerous one. If you join it, you stand a 3% chance of not surviving as, uh, as 3% of those astronauts have died while on missions. But one of the things that this club shares is what, uh, what's become known as the overview effect. It's a psychological phenomenon that's experienced by many people who leave Earth's atmosphere and travel into space. Now, you've experienced something of the overview effect, just not to the extent that astronauts do. For instance, if you go up to the top of Lookout Mountain and you go out on those bluffs or you go out on the, on the, the overlook there at Rock City and you look out over the valley, you look out over Chattanooga, that, that sense that you have when you look out over an area like that, that's called the overview effect where you, you lose sight of the individual pieces of the community and you begin to notice the community as a whole. You watch Chattanooga move underneath you but the community becomes the sum of its parts rather than individual pieces, which is our normal ground-level perspective. We look at ground level, we see everything uh, as, as individuals, as individual moving pieces. You've seen it in an airplane. Uh, on a clear day at 35,000 feet, when you've looked out the window, you look down and you see the ground. And I know when I'm on an airplane, I want to try to figure out what I'm looking at. And I, I wish that there was a way that I could, I could kind of compare what I'm looking at to kind of know what, what's down there. 
And if you know something of the geography, you can, you can sometimes make it out. But, but really at an airplane at cruising altitude, the, the, what's going on underneath is really uh, almost seems inconsequential uh, if you really stop and think about it. That ground level detail becomes very hard to see. For astronauts, though, that overview effect is taken to a whole new level because their perspective is dominated by the, the view of the entire planet just outside their, their window. And they describe the, the overwhelming sense that this terra firma is the only ship that we've got. That's why many astronauts come back and they're, they're kind of uh, environmentally conscious. A lot of astronauts, you'll go to their homes and they'll, they'll be driving electric cars and have solar panels on their roofs because they've, they've been so taken aback by this overview effect that they feel like they've got to they've change some things about their lives. One author described the overview effect this way. He said, it is the experience of seeing firsthand the reality of the earth and space which is immediately understood to be a tiny, fragile ball of life hanging in the void, shielded and nourished by a paper-thin atmosphere. From space, national boundaries vanish, the conflicts that divide people become less important, and the need to create a planetary society with the united will to protect this pale blue dot becomes both obvious and imperative. Now, you could see quickly how that overview effect could be manipulated by the environmental movement, but I do think that there's something about this perspective that should challenge us as we enter into the Advent season. Because I know what happens in this season of the year where our lives are, are controlled by the calendar. We have to, someone says, can you do this? And you automatically say, well, let me check my calendar. Um, or you say, let me check my wife's calendar. Or let me check and see what's going on. You're dominated by by those individual interactions, you know, you, you know, well, who's traveling where and when and, and, and what are we going to get, what gifts are going to be under the tree, and, and your, your life during this season is so overwhelmed by a thousand individual decisions and interactions that if you don't stop and take a step back, uh, a 35,000-foot perspective, if you will, then it's easy to lose track during the Advent season of exactly what this season is about. And so that's why I want us to be challenged to, to, to maybe take something from that overview effect where we certainly we can't uh, excuse ourselves from those thousand individual decisions, but, but momentarily during this season to just take a, a different perspective, to look at it from a much grander perspective. And, and that's what I want us to do during our sermons over the next four weeks is to, is to think about the Advent season, the, the Advent, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ from a perspective that's bigger than our circumstances, bigger than our own communities. And so each week we'll focus on a different theme. Uh, today we want to focus on the theme of peace. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read a passage that you're very familiar with, one that we often save for the end of the season. But, uh, but as a, a way to kind of set the stage, I want to read it today at the beginning of our season from Luke's Gospel, the second chapter, the beginning in verse 8. If you're able, would you please stand with me as we read this familiar passage this morning. <clears throat> and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Father, I thank you for the Christmas story, one that is so familiar, one that we could perhaps even recite from memory. But God, even as we deal with a familiar passage today, we would pray that in its familiarity we would not lose sight of what it wants to teach us. And so, God, may we understand something of peace today as we seek to consider Advent from a much higher perspective. God, we love you and we thank you for this season and the privilege we have to spend time in your word together today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We focus on all the different characters, all the different scenes, all the different actions that take place during the nativity of Luke's chapter 2. But this morning I want us to consider the promise that is made by the angels to the shepherds in the fields of Bethlehem. You know, what a sight it must have been to see the sky illuminated by the glory of a host of heaven's angels. Now, how many is a host? I don't know. But you would think that if it were enough that they could count, that somebody would have counted them. Right? You know, there are about 20 of them up there in the sky. But that's not what we get. Instead, we get, a, we get an uncountable number. We get a host of angels, which tells me that the shepherds were a little overwhelmed with the sight that they had there in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. And thinking about this scene, I wonder what the scene over Bethlehem must have looked like from space. If you've seen pictures of nighttime photography of the Earth from the International Space Station or, or, or the Space Shuttle, you've seen how, how cities are illuminated in those nighttime photographs. Maybe you've seen that kind of that iconic space photograph where you see Asia illuminated at night, but you see the darkness of North Korea because of the, the, the rule of the, the Korean dictators. They, they don't allow them to have the electricity to light their homes, and so you've seen the darkness over North Korea. But if you think about the time in which we are talking here in the birth of Jesus, there were no artificial lights. Any fire that would have been used would have been too dim to be able to see from outer space. So if you could imagine a satellite orbiting the earth able to take a picture that suddenly in the darkness surrounding the Middle East, there would have been a light show like nothing that had ever been seen before as the hosts of heaven's angels illuminated the sky 
size of that field, those fields around Bethlehem. The only lights visible from space on the dark side of the earth was the heaven-produced glory given by this uncountable angelic host. But if you'll notice, their song promised peace. Their song promised peace, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he has pleased. Our understanding of that word, as many words, has been informed by our own cultural use of the word. When we think of peace, depending on what generation you're a part of, you may be thinking about peace signs, man. You may be thinking about tie-dye shirts and hippies protesting military conflicts and military interventionism. However, I think we would all agree that peace is about far more than the cessation of military conflict. There's more to peace than just the silencing of our guns. If we were to have peace, we would also see the battlegrounds of our urban streets turned into places of sanctuary. If we were to truly have peace, then imagine this, defects would no longer be in business. There'd be no need to call. Peace would occur when the most boring job in the world next to the Maytag repairman would be the job of a police officer or law enforcement. If we were to have peace, those are the characteristics of what true peace would be. However, since that babe was born in Bethlehem, I think we would all agree that peace, as we defined it here, has been very hard to come by. The last 2,000 years have been marked by wars that have been fought on scales larger than anything imaginable by those Roman emperors who made life so difficult for those early followers of Jesus. The last 2,000 years have, have seen the church spread into some of the darkest corners of our planet, but it does so at great risk and great peril. Our generation is witnessing the largest outbreak of persecution that has ever been experienced by the church, and the fact is, is that we are mostly experiencing it in silence as our modern media cares nothing to report about the details of the widespread persecution that is taking place. According to Open Doors, one of the largest ministries to the persecuted church, there are likely more Christians living in China today than there are members of the Chinese Communist Party. Let that settle in. Likely more Christians in China today than there are members of the Chinese Communist Party. However, under China's president, Xi Jinping, the church is being forced deeper and deeper underground through the targeting of church leaders, the closing and shuttering of prominent churches, even though they're outnumbered in that nation. We could get into crime statistics, but I don't know that we need to. It affects our urban streets. It affects our rural communities. Our own communities being ravaged by a drug epidemic that brings with it all the violence and despair. Some of the very best data that we can get our hands on today suggests that even within a seven-mile radius of our church right here, there are more people with an opioid addiction than there are with an alcohol addiction. Let that settle in. More people within a seven-mile radius of our church struggling with opioids 
instead of uh, more more with opioids than alcohol. And this is literally where there is a church on every corner. For crying out loud, our corner's got two churches on it. Yet 12% of the adults in our neighborhood are hooked on narcotics. That's the nature in which we live. I'll never forget waking up on Christmas morning in 2004. We lived in Vance, Alabama, in the parsonage of Vance Baptist Church. Our address was Vance Church Road, if that gives you any sense of, of the small community in which we lived. We took great pride in our caution light. There wasn't a grocery store. There wasn't even a Dollar General then, if, that would, uh, if you can believe it. I think there's a Dollar General on the moon. Vance was a wide spot in the road, had a police officer, just one. It was literally in the middle of nowhere. Vance's claim to fame is that when an Alabama football, got football game left out, they sent the traffic down Highway 11 all the, way out of, all the way back up to Birmingham. But that Christmas morning, under the shadow of our steeple, our neighbor's home was surrounded by crime scene tape right there in the wide spot in the road. All because on Christmas Eve, an argument turned violent, and the woman who lived there brutally murdered her husband with a kitchen knife. Right there in Vance, Alabama. Even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, how many times have our churches been ripped to shreds over meaningless conflict and controversy? How many churches lack peace because of those meaningless ordeals? The last place on planet Earth that should be mired in disagreements over trivial and inconsequential matters is frequently one of the most hostile environments that you can find. This is not how it should be. All this should lead us to a question. What gives? What gives? Didn't the angels promise the shepherds peace? Peace on earth, goodwill to men, we sing about it at Christmas. What gives? How can we live in a world that's ravaged by drugs and murder and conflict and controversy and strife and persecution? How can we live in such a world when the promise of the angels is glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased? Where's this peace promised by the angels. Isaiah declared him to be the prince of peace. Have we missed something along the way? First of all, we need to define peace. It's helpful for us to understand what peace is not. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is not a temporary situation. Peace is not forced. When we think about how that word is used today, for example, a nation signs a peace treaty. We've had presidents who've gone to Israel and tried to negotiate peace accords between the Palestinians and the Israelites and the Egyptians and tried to get people to sign peace treaties. But what we find in those peace treaties is that a treaty does nothing but guarantees a forced, temporary cessation of conflict, not real peace. So what is it that the angels are talking about here? You see, peace in the Bible comes from the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom means wholeness, completeness, 
soundness, health, safety, prosperity, carrying with it the implication of permanence. And there's two places where we see that type of shalom found on a corporate level in the Bible. First, it's in the Garden of Eden before the fall. There, Adam and Eve experienced perfect shalom. It was lasting. It was granted by God. It was not tainted by the fall. And the only other place in the Bible where we see that promise of corporate shalom is at the end of the ages when Christ's enemies become a footstool and his followers take their place as co-regents in God's new heaven and his new earth. And so we long for peace. We pray for peace. But as we do, we really should understand what it is that we are longing for. Because the fact of the matter is, is we really want more than just the absence of conflict. We could have armed guards at every prominent location. We could have, uh, we could have that, but that's not really peace. It's just forced absence of conflict. It's contrived peace. Even as we pray for peace today, we recognize that our prayers will ultimately be fulfilled at the end of the age. But let's be honest, we're kind of stuck here in the middle right now, aren't we? I mean, we're kind of stuck here. So, so what are we asking for? We need to understand that we don't find peace, but instead we are granted peace. Notice what the angel said, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Isaiah 26, verses 3 through 4 say this, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. Listen, peace is not a condition of going to church. Peace is not a condition of living near a church. Here in the South, there are folks who believe that their spiritual condition is all right because they live close enough to a church that they can, they can get there if they need to. Peace is not a condition of going to a church as a child. How many live today and they, they walk in through their life today without any semblance of Christian faith, but if you ask them if they're a believer, they, re they reflect on when they were a kid. And they got baptized as a kid. They went to VBS as a kid. They did all the things they were supposed to do as a kid, but as an adult, there's no visible manifestation of faith. Listen, that's not a condition of peace. Peace is not a condition of owning a Bible. Many people own a Bible, and it does a good job of keeping dust off of that rectangular area on their coffee table. Peace is not a condition of being a generally good person. Peace is is a condition of trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. We are granted peace not through accomplishing these tasks. We are granted peace as men and women who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that guarantee of peace, listen, it is not a promise that we are going to have a carefree life that is free of troubles. There are many people who preach that today, that the Christian life is one that is free from troubles and free from trials, and, and, and you'll have nothing but health and prosperity, and that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. Because the fact of the matter is this, Jesus promised us that in this world we will have troubles. That does not negate peace. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that all who desire to live godly lives would indeed be persecuted. But that does not revoke God's guarantee of peace. We have a problem if we are operating off of a worldly definition of peace. If we are operating off a worldly definition of peace, we might just find ourselves very disappointed with how our lives have turned out in the world in which we live. But listen to what Jesus said in John 14, verse 27. One of the last things Jesus told his disciples, he says, peace, shalom, I leave with you. My peace, my shalom, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus' offer is something radically different than what the world has to give. We aren't to be satisfied with peace as the world gives us because we've been given greater peace in Jesus. What does this peace do? Well, this is the kind of radical peace, this kind of radical shalom, as the Hebrews called it. Jesus gives us this kind of peace that allows us to even find joy in the midst of our sufferings. It's the kind of peace that that Jesus gives us that allows us to face death with confidence. It's the kind of peace that Jesus lives us that allows us to grieve with hope. The kind of peace that Jesus lives is the kind of peace that allows us to forgive our enemies. To be so bold as to turn the other cheek to those who oppose us. The kind of peace Jesus lives is the kind of peace shown by our Lord when in agony being crucified upon the cross, he cried out and prayed for his his crucifiers. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Listen, that's peace that's mind-blowing. Because I'm going to be honest, it's going to be hard for me to forgive the guys that are nailing spikes into my hands and spikes into my feet who are gambling over my clothes while I hang naked in front of all of the people in my shame and in my agony. Forgiveness is not the first thing on my mind. Yet Jesus can say, Father, forgive them. Listen, that is peace. That is shalom. It's the kind of peace that allows Paul to pin these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The apostle says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe, so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And listen to what he says in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light, momentary affliction, this, this trial, this struggle, this momentary affliction that we face is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says the struggles that you're facing today, friend, they compare nothing to the glory that waits for you. It doesn't matter if you're crushed or perplexed or persecuted. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. The struggle you face today is nothing like the promise of glory waiting tomorrow. And indeed, if you face it today, it'll make you appreciate what tomorrow has. So much more. So much more. He says, we don't look to things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This kind of peace that's offered, this offer of shalom that's granted to us through faith in Jesus is the kind of shalom that allows stories like this. A man by the name of Polycarp, first century believer, a student, a disciple of John the Apostle, he was an overseer, an elder in the church in Smyrna. He heard that soldiers were looking for him, tried to escape what was discovered by a child. After feeding the guards who captured him, he asked for an hour in prayer, which they gave him. He prayed with such fervency that his guards said they were sorry that they were the ones who captured him. Nevertheless, he was taken before the governor and condemned to be burned in the marketplace. After his sentence was given, the governor said to him, Reproach Christ! and I'll release you. And Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And in the marketplace he was tied to the stake rather than nailed as was the custom, because he assured them that he would stand immovable in the flames and not fight them. As the dry sticks placed around him were lit, the flames rose up and circled his body without touching him. The executioner was then ordered to pierce him with a sword. When he did, a great quantity of blood gushed out and put out the fire. Although his Christian friends asked to be given his body so they could bury him, the enemies of the gospel insisted that it be burned in the fire, which was done. Ignatius was another first century believer 
He was the overseer of the church in Antioch, which was the capital of Syria. It's where disciples were first called Christians. He was sent to Rome because he professed and taught Christ. It's said that when he passed through Asia, even though guarded by soldiers, he preached the word of God in every city they traveled through and encouraged and strengthened the churches in Rome and appealed to them. Uh, while in Smyrna, he wrote to the church in Rome and appealed to them not to try to deliver him from martyrdom because they would deprive him of that which he most longed and hoped for. And he wrote, Now I begin to be a disciple. Think about that. Now I begin to be a disciple when my life has been demanded of me. For I care nothing for visible or invisible things so that I may but win Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the companies of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and the tearing of limbs, let the grinding of the whole body and all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, only may I win Christ Jesus. And even when he was sentenced to be fed the lions, he could hear their roaring. He was filled with such a desire to suffer for Christ that he said, I am the wheat of Christ. I'm going to be ground with the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found pure bread. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. The Apostle Paul, in a benediction, says this. May the peace, the shalom, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's easy to understand a peace treaty. It's easy to understand forced and coerced peace at the hands of government and authorities. But church, listen to me. The world can't make sense of the peace that God grants. The world can't make sense of a peace that allows men like Ignatius and Polycarp to face their executioners with a sense of joy. The world can't make sense of a peace that allows the Christian to grieve the loss of a loved one with unspeakable hope. The world can't make sense of that peace. But when the angels cried out over the fields of Bethlehem, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, That makes all the sense in the world from the divine standpoint. So my prayer for you this Advent season is that you know the peace that's given through a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're looking for peace in the middle of your life today and you do not have a right relationship with Christ, you will come up empty-handed every single time. And you, if you do find peace, if you find a moment of calm in your life, I can promise you it is but a brief moment. But if you look for peace that's granted through the Lord Jesus Christ, it's peace that's everlasting. It's peace that takes you through these momentary light afflictions 
and prepares for you that weight of glory that the Apostle Paul tells us about. So this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, if you don't yet have the peace that passes all understanding, I'd love to give you an opportunity today to begin your Advent season with new life, to be granted true shalom, true peace that lasts forever and ever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.